This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and it's Friday. You made it. Six years ago, I stood on a stage in front of 4,000 people next to competitive food-eating legend Joey Chestnut while he chugged 12 pints of beer in less than 75 seconds. And now I talk about murder for a living. What a journey my career has been. Let's dive into today's stories. A new use for an air mattress? A total eclipse of the heart? The worst parents of all time? A machete-wielding jihadist? A not-so-neighborly dispute? And caretakers turned traffickers? All coming up on this Day in Crime. As a former cop, I've searched a lot of houses. And trust me, I've found plenty of bizarre things hidden under a mattress. But an air mattress? That would be a first for me. And it was a first for officers with the St. Peter's Police Department in Missouri. Here's what happened. According to a probable cause affidavit, 18-year-old Jackson L. Pierce called his roommate and said that 23-year-old Dalton Coleman was at their home angry and was demanding unknown items that he claimed belonged to him. The roommate said he spoke with both Pierce and Coleman on the phone in an attempt to squash the argument and calm everyone down. The roommate said before he hung up, he told Pierce to, quote, collect items of value, including a firearm which was kept in a cabinet above the microwave in the kitchen and store them in his room, unquote. Minutes after that call ended, the roommate received a second call from Pierce in which Pierce told him that he and Coleman had gotten into a fight and that he had shot and killed Coleman. The roommate said he implored Pierce to call the police, but Pierce was like, yeah, that's not happening. So the roommate called the police himself, which meant eventually a SWAT team showed up at the house and ordered everyone outside. Pierce and a juvenile walked outside and were detained while other officers secured a search warrant for the home. Once inside, they found Coleman's bullet-riddled body wrapped in a deflated air mattress inside a closet. A plastic garbage bag was secured around Coleman's head with a piece of an electric cord cut from a lamp. So according to the affidavit, Pierce told investigators that he shot Coleman after he forced his way upstairs and tried to hit him. Pierce said the first shot struck him in the stomach, and when he didn't fall down, he continued to pull the trigger 14 times until the gun was empty, which was a pretty good guess because according to the autopsy, Coleman was shot a total of 15 times in the abdomen, hand, and face. Pierce and the other boy then attempted to clean the scene with towels and dish soap, which for anyone that has teenage boys, sounds exactly how you'd expect them to clean up a murder scene. Dude, where's the dawn? Pierce has been charged with second-degree murder and tampering with evidence and remains in jail with a $1 million bond. So he won't be breathing free air anytime soon. 
I know most people assume if your loved one dies while in prison, the process after the fact runs smooth as silk. But surprisingly, that's not necessarily the case in Alabama. The family of Brandon Clay Dotson, who died in a state prison in November, filed a federal lawsuit against the Alabama Department of Corrections and others, stating when they received his body, it had not been embalmed and his heart was missing. And as if that wasn't shocking enough, the lawsuit alleges this happened to another Alabama inmate's family as well. In a court filing last week, the daughter of Charles Edward Singleton, another deceased inmate, said her father's body was missing all of his internal organs when it was returned to them in 2021. The attorney representing Dodson's family said that the experience of multiple families shows this is absolutely part of a pattern. That's freaking scary. Dodson, 43, was found dead at Ventress Correctional Facility. His family suspected foul play, so they hired a pathologist to do a second autopsy, and that's how they discovered his heart was missing. Now they'd like to know what happened. And as you can imagine, they're none too happy. The lawsuit describes the misconduct of prison officials as appalling and nothing short of grave robbery. Now, typically after an autopsy, the internal organs are put into a bag, placed inside the open torso, and then the torso is sewn shut. But according to court documents, in the Dotson's case, the bag was missing his heart, and in the Singleton's case, there was no bag and no organs at all. The lawsuit filed by the Dotsons contended that the heart might have been retained during a state autopsy with the intention of giving it to the medical school at the University of Alabama for research purposes. But attorneys for the university said that was bald speculation and wrote in a court filing that the university did not perform the autopsy and never received any of Dotson's organs. And a hearing held by a federal judge last week provided no additional answers about the location of his heart. So what the hell happened? Where did all these organs go? Is someone within the Alabama prison system harvesting organs from inmates and selling them on the black market? Is the person who conducted these autopsies just really shitty at their job? I don't know, but I'll tell you this, I can't wait to find out. So stay tuned. Obviously, your life is missing something. So let's take a quick break to see if this is it. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I think we can all agree that the world would be a much better place if horrible people were born sterile. But unfortunately, that's seldom the case. Victor Lee Turner and Megan R. Turner were arrested in Cross Hill, South Carolina on Wednesday and charged with the murder of his five-year-old son, her stepson, nearly 35 years after his death. Megan Turner, then known as Pamela Turner, reported her stepson, Justin Turner, missing on March 3, 1989. She reported that the five-year-old never got off the school bus that afternoon. Two days later, Victor called police when he allegedly found his son's strangled body in a camper on their property. Justin's body, clothing, and shoes did not contain debris from outdoors, so investigators believed he was carried from his home to the camper. They also believed his body was hidden by someone familiar with the camper and its layout. They grew even more suspicious of Justin's parents when they learned that they were the only ones with access and keys to the camper. Thankfully, in this case, it doesn't sound like the Turners are exactly criminal masterminds. According to an affidavit, before Justin's body was found, Victor Turner was overheard, and I quote, asking a law enforcement official at the scene nervously while wringing his hands, what if someone had done harm to the victim, such as killed him, and that if that person was in the family, what would happen to them? So he's clearly an idiot. Justin's stepmom later admitted to witnesses that she had had an altercation with the five-year-old before the time she said she last saw him alive and allegedly gave misinformation to investigators about her whereabouts that day. At one point, Pamela Turner was arrested in connection with Justin's death, but the case was dismissed without prejudice, meaning they could refile the charges later with new evidence. In 2021, Justin's cold case was reopened to see if old evidence could be re-examined using new technology. Let's go science. 
Thankfully, forensic analysis found that a ligature recovered from the Turner's home was likely the weapon used to strangle Justin, and when the Turners became aware of this, they allegedly expressed concern and devised a plan to withhold and conceal potential evidence. The Turners' first court appearances are scheduled for March 15th. It was not immediately clear if they had attorneys yet, but let's all hope when they do get attorneys, they're not much smarter than they are. All persons in these stories are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Before this next story, it would have been pretty tough for me to take seriously anyone claiming to be a jihadist who's named Trevor. But here we are. 20-year-old Trevor Bickford of Maine, a young man who authorities say was obsessed with radical Islamic jihadism, pleaded guilty yesterday to attacking three NYPD officers with a machete in last year's New Year's Eve celebrations in Times Square. Trevor, who was 19 at the time, attacked the officers who were manning a checkpoint with a machete while he shouted, Allahu Akbar, a phrase I've only heard shouted in movies right before a suicide bomber presses a button. According to reports, as Trevor slashed away at the officers, one of them shot him in the shoulder. Rookie officer Paul Casalino, who was working his first shift right out of the academy, suffered a large laceration to his head and a skull fracture. Another officer was caught by surprise and suffered a severe cut on his head as well. I mean, these guys were working a New Year's Eve party, so I'm sure a machete-wielding Trevor was like the last thing they expected. And interestingly enough, Trevor was interviewed by federal agents the month before the attack after being notified by family members who were alarmed by his new extremist beliefs and his expressed desire to move to Afghanistan to join the Taliban. Not every American parent's dream. Trevor pleaded guilty to six of his seven charges, including attempted murder. After the attack, Trevor told investigators that his mission was unsuccessful because none of the officers were killed and he did not achieve martyrdom. Hmm, sorry Trevor, no virgins in heaven for you. And probably no heaven. I don't really know how that works. I have to wonder if this next tragedy would have been avoided if Mr. Rogers were still on the air. Here's what happened. A 17-year-old boy who was charged with killing four members of a neighboring family in Central California made his first appearance in court yesterday. The teenager, who was identified in juvenile court only by the initials R.I. because of his age, pleaded not guilty and was ordered to remain in custody. Prosecutors have filed a motion asking that he be tried as an adult. He's charged with killing 81-year-old Billy Bond, his son, 61-year-old Daryl Bond, granddaughter-in-law Guadalupe Bond, 44, and grandson Matthew Bond, 43. The bodies of Billy Bond, Daryl Bond, and Guadalupe Bond were found in the backyard of their home Saturday. Matthew Bond's body was found in the detached garage of the teenager's home, so it's gonna be interesting to hear how that came to be. Right now, investigators are withholding details of the killings, but have suggested the motive was theft after they discovered the victim's safe, which was known to store guns and cash, had been forced open and emptied. The boy's mother and her boyfriend have been charged with being accessories after the fact and are free on bond. And I'm sure they have absolutely no idea where the guns and money went. And finally, just when you thought Florida was out of surprises, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department announced the arrest of 123 residents in a sex and human trafficking operation. A 
Among those arrested were a camp counselor, an elementary school teacher, and multiple family members of the children who were trafficked. The sheriff's department used undercover deputies posing as minors online that were available for sex. They also posed as streetwalkers and underage prostitutes in hotel and motel operations. And according to documents, the pedophile Johns charged in this case were seeking sexual encounters with girls and boys as young as 10. The sheriff added that the most alarming trend detectives saw in this case was the possession of firearms by some of the people arrested. He said, quote, as if the sexual exploitation is not damaging enough, who knows what their true intentions were with the firearms they possessed? This is the part that's even more concerning than them just trying to have this illegal, incredibly heinous act with a young person, unquote. The arrests were perfectly timed to be announced on National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. 123 people charged with either seeking to have sex with kids or trafficking their own kids for sex to include a camp counselor, a teacher, and members of their own family in an investigative effort named Operation Renewed Hope. I think I would have chosen a different name. That's all I have for today. So that's a wrap on this week's top crime stories, but make sure you tune in tomorrow to go back in crime with Jessica Knoll. I'll see you on Monday. This Day in Crime is a production of Timberfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Jessica Nola and myself are co-executive producers. Today's episode is hosted and written by me, Todd McComas. You've been listening all week to my other co-hosts and writers, Laura Benson and Eric Quintana. Sean Nerney is our lead producer and editor. John Street and Tracy Kaplan are the supervising producers, along with additional production by Dennis Cooper, Dayton Cole, Cena Pritchard, and Jordan Foxworthy. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. The cover art is by Byron McCoy and Isabella Maxey. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to check out Saturday's Back in Crime episode written and hosted by Jessica Knoll. I'll see you on Monday.